All right, we're doing um, question 29 in the Shorter Catechism. So if you need a catechism, you can, there should be some on the table. Scripture reading we'll be looking at in a minute is Titus 3, the first eight verses of that. So we've just finished a very encouraging section in the Shorter Catechism where we've been looking at Jesus' gracious work of redemption and seeing what he has done for us. It's encouraging because we've seen how he did everything that needed to be done in order to redeem us. He did the work of a prophet, which you will recall was revealing to us the truth about God and about the way of salvation and being himself the message of God to us, bringing salvation by the very work that he did and showing us the law of God in the way that that he lived among us. And now we saw that even when he's exalted to the right hand of God, that as even in, in his divine nature even, the divine and human nature as mediator, he continues to bring the word to us with his divine power and to bring the word to the nations that we might know the way of God and that we might walk in the will of God. He did the work also of a priest. And you will recall that with that, that he not only offered the sacrifice that God requires to save us from our sins, but he also became the sacrifice. So there's so many ways that Christ fills these offices more than than, uh, we could have ever even imagined. We saw that as our sin offering, he fully atoned for our sin by his own blood. And as our burnt offering, that he, unlike we, he was totally um, dedicated to God for us. And as our fellowship or peace offering, he is the sacrifice that actually imparts life to us. And now he continues also as the one exalted in heaven to intercede for us as our priest praying that his sacrifice will be fully applied to us in all of these ways. So again, we have him in his humiliation fulfilling his office, but also in his exaltation. And then we saw that he does the work of a king. And that, you'll recall, is that he conquers sin for us, conquers Satan, conquers death, conquers all of our enemies, that we might be completely delivered from bondage so that we can serve God alone faithfully. He is going forth and conquering people now in his exaltation in a very powerful way so as to make them willing servants of God. We're told that in Psalm 110 that we become willing in the day of his power. And he's going to completely overcome sin and death and the world and Satan and all that is against God at the last day. To a certain extent, we have already talked about how he applies his work to us. But today, and even in the next couple of lessons from the catechism, we're going to look in a more focused way at how Jesus connects us with his redemptive work, how he applies the benefits of the wonderful work of redemption. But uh, because you see, it would, be, it would be terrible 
if Jesus had done all that work on the cross and as our prophet revealing things and as our king um, conquering various things for us, and if that work of redemption was never brought to us, and it was never connected with, it was just out there. You know, here's this work of redemption that you can have for the taking, but it's never connected with anyone. Like, that would be a terrible thing if it was just there for whoever would have it. Sort of like a doctor who found a marvelous cure for cancer and no one had access to it. And no one, maybe they didn't know about it or they couldn't go to the doc, get to the doctor or something. And he had a cure and people were dying of cancer. Um, it would be a very, very sad thing. The fact is that there are a lot of people who are like that when it comes to Christ's redemption. There are people who don't face the fact that they need to be saved and that they can be saved, or probably even more of their truth, that they don't really want to be saved. And if the truth be told, there is not one person who would come to, who would come to Jesus if God did not take action to draw them. Jesus said that no one will come to me unless my Father in heaven draws them. So we won't even, we won't come unless he applies the work to us by divine power. We're too rebellious. We're too stubborn. We won't have anything to do with God. If you have come to Christ then, it's only because he, God, brought you to Christ. There's no other reason. And that's what we're looking at today, how the Lord goes about connecting us to his redemption, bringing us into the saving work of Christ. So the catechism question that addresses this and introduces us to, as I say, there's three questions here we'll be looking at, um, is question 29. So let's confess this together. Uh, Question 29, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. You can see how the Catechism emphasizes that it is the work of God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who connects us to Christ's saving or redemptive work. Later on, when we get to question 85 the catechism will speak about what we must do to be saved. And that's important. There's something that we're called to do, to repent of our sin, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to continue in the means of grace. But with question 29 through 31, we see what God does to bring us to repent and believe. And and without that, we, we would never do what we've been called to do. Okay, so for our scripture reading, I've chosen Titus 3, 1 through 8, where the Apostle Paul speaks to us about this truth. So here is God's word, Titus 3, beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, 
living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to, const- to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. These words show you very clearly that your salvation was God's initiative, not yours. And then it gives you some things that will follow from that when you understand that. In other words, when you realize that it was God's initiative that you're saved, there's a certain way that you'll behave toward other people, especially other people who do not know the Lord. So we're going to look at some of that today. Let's begin, though, first that uh, these words show you that connecting with Christ was not from any merit or goodness on your part. Verse 3 shows us what a desperate, stinking condition we were in. It says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Very unattractive description. This is what you are all like before the grace of God reached you. Foolish. Let's look at these. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, and we were fools. We did not have any fear of God. You would not receive God's counsel, so you lived a life that was headed for ruin and for judgment. And... Along with that, we were disobedient. You would not obey God's commands even though you knew them. There were things you knew that you ought to do, good and well you ought to do, that you did not do, and things you knew that you ought not to do, that you just kept on doing because you didn't fear God. You knew it's wrong, but you kept on doing it anyway. We were deceived. Your heart was darkened to such an extent that you'd believe almost anything as long as it, was, as it was socially acceptable, maybe, and supported your agenda. Um, it's staggering, for example, to see how many people total today actually believe in self-creation by evolution. They, they actually believe that. And I've told some of you that I've gotten where whenever people bring up the, the evolution like that, when I'm meeting someone and they say, ask them what they think about God, and they say, oh, I, I believe in evolution or whatever, and I say, Really? Do you really believe that? And begin to question them on it because it, it really, and, and it's amazing. I've had several people that kind of admitted that, well, they didn't really know uh, why they believed it really. It's just that everybody talked about it. And uh, it's the, the whole world, that the whole world and all the stars and everything came into being on their own. 
It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So we're, we're deceived, and deceived in all kinds of ways. That's just one area. But if you're deceived about your Creator, that's a, that's a full deception. Serving various lusts and pleasures. That was another way that, thing that was characteristic. Giving yourself over to your desires without considering God's will, what God wants. Whether it was blasting your wife and children because they happened to be there when you were having a bad day, or spending the household income to support drunkenness, or prostitution, or gambling, or some other expensive pastime. You are living for your own desires and even sometimes consumed in bondage to your own desires to such an extent that um, it didn't matter what God said. It was just all about what you wanted, what pleased you. Living in malice and envy, carrying around bitterness and resentment toward others such as would even make you secretly rejoice when they fall. You know, well, got what was coming to him. Instead of loving your neighbor, make you sinfully competitive with even your spouse or your own children. And such as would make you take verbal digs at your neighbor to gossip about your neighbor. Realize that when you love to say derogatory things or to harbor bitter thoughts about others, it's a manifestation of a heart of malice, maliciousness, a, a, a hatred that's there. And that's the last one is hateful and hating one another. That kind of flows out of in, in malice and envy. It's just the opposite of what Christ has called us to do, which is to love one another. Love gives and does good, but hatred harms and brings trouble. Even a parent who is very tender toward his own children, but who rejects God actually shows hatred to his own children because he points them away from God and to their own example of not following God. Pointing them away from God is the worst thing you'd ever do for a child. The parent who does this refuses to give up his rejection of God, even though it brings destruction not only to the parent, but also to the child that you claim to love. So this is where... This is where you all were without Christ. I could almost say, you know, where you all are. It's what you would be apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus. In such a condition, it is patently obvious that it was, as verse 5 puts it, not by works of righteousness which we have done (laughs) that we're saved. If that is true about us, then no one can say, oh, well, You see, I was a good person, and so God took me in. God did not look at you and say, now now there's a fellow I ought to save. There's a good one right there. Uh, There's a nice woman. I think I'll bring her into my kingdom. He saw you just as you are described in verse 3, because that's where we were. That's why your salvation is all chalked up to God's free love and mercy. Just like it says in verse 4 and 5, according to his mercy... He saved us. Mercy indicates that he did not see something commendable that he was sort of repaying you or rewarding you for. There was nothing that he saw in you that moved him toward you. Not faith, not good works, not good intentions, not honesty or integrity. 
Not anything that he foresaw drew him to you either. It was not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy. He had no obligation to show you mercy, but would have been perfectly justified to condemn you forever. And that's why God's mercy is such a grand thing. Because it is, by definition, wholly undeserved. But a lack of righteousness or of any good works to attract God to you is not the only problem in you that makes it clear that you did not contribute to your being connected to Christ, to your redemption. It was also the case that you were so hardened that you did not even want to be rescued. You were someone drowning in sin and you didn't want to be delivered from the, from the flood. You were in such a condition that even though you might be told of all that Jesus did to redeem sinners, how he left glory, how he became flesh, how he died on the cross to atone for sin, was raised again for our justification, how that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, how that if you come to him, no matter what you have done, he will completely pardon you and receive you. Even if you were told all of that in the kindest and tenderest and most compelling way possible, in the most clear way, you were in such a condition that it would make you resistant and angry. You were pleased to be independent from God and bitterly resented some idea that you deserved to be punished for breaking away from God. You were happy to serve God on your own terms. So what business does he have to be offended with you and tell you that he sent his son to atone for your sins? You've been serving on your own terms. If it's not good enough for him, then you you didn't want anything to do with him. That's how some people are. If he is so loving, you would say, then he ought to just accept you without all of that atonement business. The very idea of a suffering Savior was offensive to you. I, I should be acceptable the way I am. You see, you had no fear of God. No, you were deceived. You had no sense of your sin. It, it is this offense that makes, uh, with, with the gospel that makes people so hostile toward Christians in the gospel, more than they are toward any other religion. Because other religions don't have salvation by free grace. They have it at least to some extent by your merit. Part of what makes it so offensive is the fact that it is true that, and, and it is disturbing to people because they don't want it to be true. That they're unworthy and all that. They don't want that to be true. And if Christians are living godly lives, okay, they've been redeemed, they've been changed, they've been born again, and they're living by grace a godly life in the world. And at the same time that they're living a godly life, they're preaching this business about needing God's son to die for them and about having no merit of their own and they're living a godly life. Then it makes it all the more offensive. It always has and it always will until the Lord returns and completes his kingdom. This is, this is just the nature of things. This is why there's persecution. We're persecuted for righteousness sake because we, we put forward the way of righteousness by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And at the same time, when we are converted, we live a godly life. And we say it's not near good enough because it's not. And other people are very intolerant of that. 
and they want you to be silenced and put down. But you see that uh, you see that's how it is with you. That as as Jesus said, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. So that's what we're talking about here. That no one is willing to come. It's wrong. It's so foolish. It's so stupid and wretched for God to have such a a fine and glorious remedy for us, and for Jesus to spend all that He spent for our redemption. And for us to not want anything to do with it. This is a great offense. It's to our own hurt that we refuse to come. Okay, so you see that it's not only that there is nothing in us to draw God to us. Nothing, no righteousness in us. But it's also that even when the gospel is preached to us and we're graciously invited, there's nothing in about us that wants to come and receive that salvation. We're so wretched and sinful that we utterly refuse unless God takes the initiative. There is this beautiful work of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, but we're completely disconnected from it as far as we are concerned, if left to ourselves. Now, Titus 3.5, though, describes the absolutely radically gracious change that God wrought in us. It is called... The words that Titus uses, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. These words show us clearly that it is God's Spirit who graciously applies to us the redemption that Christ accomplished. We don't apply it to ourselves. The work of the Spirit is called regeneration because it is such a radical change that's wrought in us. The Greek word is palingenesia, which contains the word, as you can hear, genesis, genesia, which speaks of the source or origin. And the word palin means again or anew. Okay, so um, in other words, there is a new origin for us. There is a new beginning for us. Regeneration. You might think of the creation account. Everything was dark and empty. Then God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. Ezekiel that we read earlier pictures God finding his people in this despicable and unregenerate state. This is how he describes his people when he found them. He calls it being in your blood, okay, an unwashed child, Ezekiel 16, 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew and matured and became very beautiful. It's such wonderful words, aren't they? God, God found us in this condition and he brought us out. Regeneration. We were dead in sin and God spoke the word to bring life to us. Then we became beautiful and alive through his grace. And again, in Ezekiel 37, he illustrates this same change with the dry bones. Remember that story? Here he promises that he will, what he will do to apostate Israel dead in their sins as the dry bones were dead in the grave. 
Ezekiel 37, 14, I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live. Remember the bones got up and, and, and lived. This change is so radical that Jesus also called it a new birth. He said that no one would come to the, see the kingdom of God except those who are born from above, born of God's spirit. This is the work that, of God in us to transform us so that we come to Jesus to be saved. It's a being born of the Spirit. It's not just imparting information or understanding, but it is a radical change in our very character and attitude to God. You can be informed about God and understand about God, and that doesn't change you. There's a change so that then you are attracted and drawn to God in His salvation with a desire to be free from your bondage and come to to him. That's the work of the new birth. You see that this work of the Spirit is also called washing here in Titus. The word washing brings out the nature of the change, that God takes what is morally corrupt, defiled, polluted, and wicked, and he cleanses it by his spirit. It's like you're, you're covered with all this filth of sin and you have to be cleansed. The outcome of this for us is that we go from being one who maliciously rejects Christ and his salvation to one who comes with thanksgiving to be saved. Not because it was naturally in you to ever do such a thing, but because God washes away the corruption that is what kept you from doing it. At least enough of the corruption so that we're willing to come to Jesus. We don't get thoroughly, thoroughly washed yet, but we get washed sufficiently so that we will come. This is what true baptism is all about. Jesus is the one who baptizes us with the Spirit. This is how he connects us to the redemption that he accomplished for us. This is how he brings us into life, the the life that goes with redemption. His Spirit washes us and joins us to Him and brings new life into us and washes off away what is vile. It is often asked what this has to do with water baptism. Well, water baptism is the symbol of this cleansing that God puts on our body. With water baptism, He puts it on our body to show us what He does. That it is a washing away of defilement. It's a visible token of what he does by his Holy Spirit. The washing of the soul with the washing of regeneration cannot be seen. And so God makes visible to us his washing of us with the sprinkling of water. He makes a kind of a pledge to us in baptism where he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. Pledge of what he does for sinners who come to him. I will cleanse you. I will wash you. I will make you pure. And it marks, it, and it marks out those that he has already, or, or what he has already done in us. And it makes us willing to come to him in the first place. Like that, that regeneration, that washing of, that, that is done. That's what makes us want to come to him at all in the first place. And see, then when we get, as I've said before, when we come to the door of his kingdom, we go in and he says, well, to come into my kingdom, you have to be washed by me. 
and baptism is a symbol that is given to, to portray that washing, that, that requirement. No one comes in except they be washed. This all serves to remind you of the fact that you did not gather yourself or yourselves as a people to Christ, but that he is the one who gathered you like a, a shepherd gathers his sheep. You know, a shepherd doesn't go up and uh, set up his, uh, his little sheep pen and then the sheep come from all around and say, oh, we want to be in, in this uh, sheep pen. You know, he has to go and, and get the sheep and, and bring them in. And that's the way it works with our, our Lord Jesus Christ. You're to look at your baptism and say, I cannot, or I came to Christ because he washed me. Titus 3, 5, and 6, not by works of righteousness, which I have done, I'll put it in the first person, uh, but according to his mercy, he saved me through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on me abundantly through Jesus Christ, my Savior. This is the reason that you came to Christ. You, you never would have come. You never would have sought him or come to him on your own. You would lay dead in your sins, alienated by your own wicked disposition toward him. Let me be clear. There are a lot of Christians that are confused about this. They want to say that it works like this. First, I heard the gospel, and there was some prompting by the Holy Spirit. Then I took the next step and reached out and took the gift of salvation. Then I was born again by God's Spirit. I received the washing of regeneration because I came to Christ. No, that's the wrong order. That's backwards. You see, it was not like that at all. It was rather that I heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit in my hearing drew me and regenerated me so that I then came to Christ for salvation. I came to him because he gave me a new heart that was willing to come to be saved. I can take no credit for coming. I came because he changed me, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration in the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out abundantly on us. How will it affect you if you believe that your coming to Christ was God's doing and not your own? There are three ways that it will help you. First, it will help you to be humble and to not boast about your salvation. Paul said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. From start to finish, salvation is God's work. And if we think that it is our own work, then we will boast, of course. And then we won't depend on the Lord as deeply as we ought even to go on living for him day by day. Because, hey, I did this. So you're dependent on yourself. Second, seeing that your coming to Christ was the work of God's Spirit will help you to be thankful truly thankful to the Lord. If you think that it was your doing, then you will not be as grateful as you ought to be. Instead of seeing yourself as a debtor to God, you'll feel that he owes you something, you know, a life of ease or comfort. I mean, God, hey, I came to serve you. You know, you should be glad that uh, I'm here. You, 
you'll feel put upon if he asks you to suffer for him. I'm, I'm one of your people. I, I, I came to you. What, what do you mean I'm going to call to suffer? You know, you, you, only, you want to only go so far with your obedience. That's not, don't make it too hard. I, 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 look, I'm volunteering here. You know, that's, that's the attitude. And finally, it's important to see that your coming to God was his work alone so that you will be secure in your salvation. If you feel that coming to him was your own work, you have no reason to suppose that you'll continue to hold on to Christ. And that's where with the Arminian theology, you see it goes together that if I delivered myself and brought myself in, I got to keep myself in. So I don't have a lot of security that I'm necessarily going to stick with it. But if God washed you and God regenerated you, then the work will last. If you think that you came on your own, then what makes you think that it will last? So you see, it's important to believe that you're coming to Christ with God's work. It's wonderful It's if you believe that that's the way it was. But a question, do you really truly believe that your coming to Christ was entirely God's work of grace? I don't think we believe it as firmly as we might say that we do. And if you look at the structure of this passage, you can see that the reason that Paul brought up the fact that salvation was all of God's free grace, that it was his work, is to keep us from being haughty. And so you can tell how fully you really believe this by looking to see how haughty you are toward other people. There's a stubborn tendency in us to feel superior to other people. That's what haughty is to feel superior to those who have not come to Christ because I came and those people over there, they didn't, they didn't come. Titus 3 tells you that you are saved by grace so that you will not think that you are better than others. If you remember where you came from, there's no room for pride because apart from the grace of God, you would be no different. Look at it uh, right at the beginning, Titus 3.1. Remind them... Okay, Paul uh, is, is writing to Titus, to the people that he's ministering to, these Christians that had been saved. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. If you truly believe that, then you won't look down your nose at unbelievers when they are living like unbelievers. That's how they live. You would be living the same way if not for God's mercy. You did not save yourself. God saved you. Do you really believe that? To the extent that you look down your nose at unbelievers that you're haughty, then you don't really believe that you are like that too. This has some very practical ramifications. You have to deal with people that are just like you would be if God had not changed you. Those who are, as Titus 3.3 says, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Maybe you have a really nasty authority in your life. 
Maybe it's a boss at work that makes unreasonable demands. Or one that never commends you. Or one that is always railing on you about something because he had a bad day. Maybe it's your own parents who are selfish and unreasonable. Maybe your own mother falsely accuses you. Or maybe your dad pretends to be nice around strangers, but you know what he's like at home. And have to put up with hearing other people tell what a nice guy he is. Or maybe it's a really cranky, unreasonable neighbor who's always trying to stir up a quarrel with you. And who spreads malicious gossip about you. Or who tries to cheat you and and to take advantage of you. Maybe it's the irritation you feel toward even your own children or wife. How can they do this? That's haughty. Instead of patiently correcting them, they need to be corrected. It's your duty to correct them. But instead of patiently correcting them, you start to attack them. My brethren, no one, no matter what anyone does to you, you are to continue doing good to them. And that's very and, and that in very practical ways. Okay, it needs to be seen. You don't say, oh, well, I have a good heart toward them. It needs to be seen that you are doing good to them. First, he shows you that you're to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey them. Nothing manifests a spirit of pride more than refusing to obey a lawful authority that God has placed over you because that authority, oh, well, they're ungodly. So I don't need to obey them. You're not to obey them if they command you to do evil. But the Bible makes it clear that the gospel way is to obey those who are placed over you even if they are harsh and even if they are unkind and unreasonable. There comes a point where it is proper, even in defense of life, to report an ungodly authority who has broken the law. But if you're in a situation where the authorities do not act, the the authorities that are over the one that you report, you're called to suffer patiently following Christ's example. Do you realize that if Christ had not submitted to the authorities, unjust authorities that were over him and that falsely accused him and so on, he never would have gone to the cross. What strangers we are to this kind of behavior. We whine and we cease to submit to our authorities when they displease us in the smallest ways. It's a sign that we don't understand the grace of God that has come to us. Passage goes on to say that we are to be ready for every good work. In other words, you're to look for ways to bless others. In thinking about authorities, you're to do what you can to prosper the business of the person that you work for, for example. A lot of times we get an attitude to the person we work for because they didn't do us right and we have resentments and all these, and then we don't really do our work diligently for them. That's a very practical thing that if you think you're better you see, then you will say, oh, I'm not going to put in a full day for that guy. You know, you might not even say that, but that's what you do. Um, it's a sure sign that you don't understand the grace of God. It, uh, so, we're, uh, children, let me speak to you too in your house. It means that you're ready to take out the garbage uh, even if you're not asked. Or to clean your room without complaining or grumbling. 
You're to be ready, as it says, for every good work. As a citizen, it means that you're to be ready to pay your taxes. Verse 2 goes on to remind you that you're not to speak evil of those who displease you. That mother-in-law or that cantankerous boss at work, put a lid on it. You're no better but for the grace of God. You don't have to go blasting away about all the wrong that's been done to you or all the wrong that so-and-so has done. Love covers faults. It is hatred that wants to publish the wrongs that others have done. Now, of course, this does not mean that you may not have to report evil. Like I said, you might have to, might even be your duty to do so to the appropriate authorities. And there are times when you might need to receive counsel from someone, tell them what's being done to you in order to, um, to, to get help on how to deal with it. But there's no place for blabbing around to everyone and going on and on about it to multiple people. Next, it says that you're to be peaceable. That means that you don't go adding fuel to the fire. Don't strike back at someone who wrongs you. Don't return blow for blow, the Bible says. As much as lies in you, you're to be at peace with all people. If you don't, then you show that you are a stranger to the real grace of God. You're no different from the world. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You know, somebody uh, cuts a shady deal for the tax collector, and he's going to be nice to that guy. Um, It's when people do wrong that the challenge comes, when they do wrong to you. Next, it says you're to be gentle and humble, meek toward all. This carries the idea of remaining serviceable and yielded toward others. Living in a posture where you're seeking to please them in whatever ways you can. It's the opposite of hardening yourself to another person. Where you become defiant and resistant toward them as a person not wanting to do anything to please them because of haughtiness. I'm better. I'm better than this other person. That's the attitude. So the Lord is reminding you in this passage that God was kind to you when you were like those that you struggle with. Who are you to be less kind to your fellow human beings when they are just what you would be apart from the new birth? Have you forgotten where you came from? I really appreciated someone the other day that I know that was in a dispute with another person and, and they pulled back graciously and they said, um, you know, let's, let's be kind. Let's be kind to each other. And you know, what a, what, a, what a good thing. What an appropriate thing. Have you forgotten where you came from? If you say, yeah, but I was never as bad as so-and-so Even when I was an unbeliever, I would have never talked to anyone like that. I never would have spoken to anyone the way they spoke to me. You say that, you don't understand mercy, my friend. You don't understand where you came from. Verse 3 tells you what you were like. It doesn't say some people were like this. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Those are pretty heavy statements. Of course, how do we deal with that? 
Like if you have a child like Timothy that knew the way of salvation from his childhood and grew up and, you know, he, he didn't go out uh, stealing from people and, and, and doing all these kind of things. And maybe as far back as he, from, from way back, he was, he was already regenerate by the Holy Spirit. How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with that by saying that, that this is what we would be apart from the grace of God, that it is in us. Is there any sin in you? It, no, no matter how, let's say you were blessed with a very godly childhood and maybe, maybe you honestly um, you know, didn't tell a lot of lies. You don't have memory of telling lies. You were, you were seeking to, to serve God and that, and that sort of thing. Well, then do you have a right to be haughty? No, because it's the grace of God that worked in you. And where would you be apart from the grace of God? That's what this passage is telling you. If you have any sin in your life, if you, if you have the capacity to sin against God, and everyone sins against God, we all sin against God, and if you would sin in any way against God, there's nothing that you wouldn't do. Nothing that you wouldn't do. If you were brought to a situation, circumstances, temptations, whatever, anybody that would go contrary to the living God would do anything. Nothing is, you say, I never do that. That's not true. You don't know what is in you. You don't realize the depth of your depravity. So, yeah, you know, you say, well, uh, but, I, yeah, but I'm not like all the unbelievers that, uh, that way. You know, they're, they're not going, you're, you're not going around following your lusts and all that kind of thing. Well, you know, it, it all depends on the perspective that you take. If you take a perspective where you're the judge, then you're going to um, you're, you're going to go wrong with that. It's not your it's not your place to uh, to acquit your your fellow criminals either and say that well you know they weren't that bad I know so and so and they weren't that bad like you're talking about with uh, being foolish and disobedient and serving various lusts. No, you're not the judge. God is the judge. And God's word says that in his eyes, verse 3, is what we all are like until his grace changes us. To his pure and holy eyes, that resentment and that bitterness and that nasty word that is spoken are like black ink blots on white linen. They stand out. It's not that God is extreme or severe either. It is that sin is a very defiling thing that brings reproach to your creator and that brings harm to your fellow citizens. Um, eating forbidden fruit brought all the trouble that we have in the world. And so the point is, when you have someone that really irritates you, it's a good time to ask yourself if you really believe that salvation is totally God's initiative and God's grace. It may be that salvation by grace has become a little fuzzy to you. As Reformed people who claim to believe in salvation by grace alone, we should be the most humble people of all. And I have to say that I don't see that we are. Brothers and sisters, the bottom line is you live what you really believe, regardless of what you say that you believe. The Holy Spirit does not challenge us with this just to beat us down or discourage us. 
He exposes our haughtiness. Why? So that we can see what our main lesson is about today. That we need to see that our salvation is by the free grace of God. That's why this, there's this exposure. It, it, it calls me up short that I look with haughtiness on my fellow sinners. It tells me I need to know God better. I need to know His free grace better and His saving work. I need to be more grateful that He saved me and that I was truly undeserving. It is as if our Lord is laying out for you the beautiful things that He has done for you and the things that He has for you to grow in as you begin to understand more what you've been rescued from. He's... He's giving you these things. You see, there's room for growth. Of course, you're not as humble as you ought to be. Of course not. You can see that. But that simply means that there's room for growth. And His grace will continue to work in you to give you that growth. Ask God to help you, and He will help you. We don't want to be in a place where we're locked into our, wherever we are in our haughtiness, and we're not growing beyond that as we grow in our understanding of the mercy of God. So please stand and let's, let's plead with God and ask Him to help us. Lord our God, You are the God of all grace and You have taken us by Your mercy and redeemed us and You had to do more than just provide redemption for us and put it out there for us because we spit in your face when if that's all that you did you had to change us lord so that we would be disposed to to come and to be willing to come and we see how that when you talk about your people that you found them in their blood that you know you're talking of their their origins lord and how you took them and as a people and you made them to be your people and then that they were able to grow up as a people in godliness and begin to follow you. But none of the children that were born, even in the most godly home, that lived a godly life from their, their childhood, could boast that they were somehow superior to other people. It was the work of your grace that wrought whatever uh, grace, whatever um, new life there was in them. And we pray, Lord, that we would realize that and that we would be a humble people, that we would be manifestly humble. Oh, Lord, we've got such a long way to go. Please forgive us, Lord. Please help us. Help us, Lord, to be all that we ought to be in your sight. We thank you so much, Lord, for, for your patience with us and how that, you know, when we see we come short, Lord, we can be glad that that it is an indication that there is just more growth for us, Lord, that we can look to you to, to bring about those changes that need to be made. Father, grant to us a, a delight in your salvation, a real perception of just how merciful and gracious you have been, and that it was not at all by works of righteousness that we have done, but it was according to your mercy that you saved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.